And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is Patrick K. O'Donnell, a historian, public speaker, and best-selling author of 12 books and a bunch of films and documentaries spanning from the American Revolution to the Battle of Fallujah. Patrick, it's an honor to have you on with us again. It's great to be back with you, Dan. I, I really appreciate it. I'm still delighted by your book. The title is The Indispensables, The Diverse Soldier Mariners Who Shaped the Country, Formed the Navy, and Rode Washington Across the Delaware. And today, maybe what we can do is kind of focus on part of that book. Uh, The title in Chapter 18 is Bunker Hill. Now, that's a big topic, so take it away, Patrick. Well, this, you know, I written 12 books and i've covered scores and scores of battles but bunker hill for me is just sacred it's i think one of america's most sacred battles and special battles and uh it's a situation where just average americans that were farmers craftsmen mechanics and the elite of boston came together to really fight the greatest army in the world at the time they stood and held. And it had, if it hadn't been for a lack of, of, of gunpowder, they probably would have held the hill um, in its entirety and repulsed the British because they had repulsed multiple attacks uh, by the British. And it's really just an epic stand that really shapes the, the American revolution in many ways, because it demonstrates that the Americans can can go toe to toe with the greatest army in the world at the time. Yeah, but also demonstrates the technology of the time um, can inflict massive losses, and the the British leader Lord Howe uh, realizes that um, you know he has to be much more careful uh, in order to conduct the war. And frontal assaults against fixed positions just don't work. And, uh, you know, it, it clouds his, his judgment. And in, in some cases, um, it causes him to become more cautious. And, and there are several crucial times during the American Revolution where, had he been more uh, risky, he may have, may have ended the war hmm. right then and there. Um, but Bunker Hill has a profound impact on, on how he conducts himself and how the British conduct themselves. And, you know, it's it's interesting because Lafayette had even the soil from Bunker Hill, it was used to bury him. I mean, that's how he was, that's how sacred he felt the battle was, mm. and just Americans in general. And, uh, you know, it's just a special place. And the Marbleheaders, which the, my book, The Indispensables, is about, or are, you know, they play a key role in the Battle of Bunker Hill. In their role is one, um, they have an artillery company of several batteries of cannon, and uh, they repulse the British. They, they, the British attack them. It's the really the key part of the battle where they attack them, and they hold um, like kind of <laughs> against all odds in many cases. And so that's where, that, that's where they come into play. The um, British at this time in Boston Harbor and to the south. Um, they had ships out there, didn't they? Yeah, the, the British have massed... The Royal Navy at the time was just enormous. It was 
the most powerful navy in the world. And they amassed their ships, and they the, the, their ships played a key role in two aspects of the of the of the Battle of Bunker Hill. Just for those that are sticklers, the the main battle actually took place at Breed's Hill, which is in front of Bunker Hill. Hmm. And um, it's here that they bombard the ships bombard um, not only Bunker Hill but Breed's Hill, where the the bulk of the Americans have their sort of makeshift fortifications, with they, which they hastily built mm. the, a couple a day or so before the actual battle takes place. The reason why it's important is the Americans wanted to position artillery on top of Breed's and Bunker Hill and then bombard the British, which were in the, the town of Boston. Mm-hmm. And the, the high ground afforded them that opportunity. And the British realized or knew that this was not, they didn't want to let the Americans have that high ground. So they Im- immediately had organized an amphibious landing on um, Charleston, and the uh, and then they wanted to dislodge the Americans from Breeds and Bunker Hill, and that's where the Navy plays a role. They they bombard, they do shore bombardment with their cannon on the American positions, and um, and then they also land troops, and they begin. Uh, you know, it's the summer day. It's June nineteenth. It's the it's the uh, you know it's the middle of the, of, of June sure. a little bit uh, in 1775. In that morning, they land in Charleston, and uh, they amass they mass their troops. And uh, the first thing they do is they clear out. There's a the, the town of Charleston has a number of buildings and homes, and uh, they burn many of them because they don't want to have riflemen attacking their troops as they're going up the hill. Mm. They burn out a lot of these places, which, uh, you know, is great cost to the civilians there, mm. obviously. Now, with their, but, uh, uh, their um, bombardment with cannon prior to coming ashore, um, some of their cannon had heated balls that would catch the buildings on fire? Right. That was the 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 point of it is they would uh, this would be a way of of um, incinerating these buildings. Wow! And they did it for uh, the main reason is you know in today's parlance they didn't want snipers hitting their guys uh, sure. and they didn't have snipers. And then they had I mean really effectively riflemen that were crack shots the Americans and uh, they wanted to eliminate that threat uh, to their backs. It's understandable why they hmm. did it. Yeah, but this caused kind of a um, a hellish scene, you know, with the the town burning, and it's a scorching day, and the uh, you know the you know thousands of men from the British army, hundreds, uh, start to land, and uh, it's it's a sea of scarlet as they land on the beaches. And they position themselves uh, to to assault the hill. Mm. Well, as we're airing this, um, tomorrow is the Fourth of July, and today we're talking with uh, historian Patrick K. O'Donnell. He's written the book "The Indispensables," a wonderful, very easy, uh, delightful read. It's a little bit long because I'm a slow reader, but I'm really enjoying it. 
and I'd really recommend you get a copy of this. Patrick, before we go any further, where can people order a, your book if they want to? Sure, um, barnesandnoble.com, or it's generally featured in the front of Barnes & Noble on the uh, history table or the new history bay. They're your independent booksellers, and then Amazon.com is always a great place to go mm-hmm. uh, to pick up the book. And I think the thing that this book is, it was the, it's been the number one history book for in, in the world for well over a month on oh, Amazon, and, and and for especially the American Revolution. It's resonating with people because they're seeing a lot of current events take place in this book in different ways. Uh, for instance, the, um, the main characters of this book are from Marblehead, Massachusetts and they're fishermen, which makes them, you know, expert mariners, but they're, they're also, they trade around the world. And, um, in 1773, 74 in, as they were trading, they also brought back with them an invisible killer a virus and the virus that they brought back was smallpox and it infected the entire town of Marblehead. And what was interesting about it is, and this is where I think there's, it resonates with people Mm -hmm. is the town was politically divided by the virus in between loyalists and Patriots. And there was a lot of mob violence and other things The, the the virus in many ways was, was weaponized uh, by one, by the, by the loyalist. And, um, there's really a sort of an amazing scene that takes place. The Patriots try to create an inoculation hospital, which at the time was, was considered cutting edge science, but people were infected by the inoculation. Sometimes they didn't go well. Sometimes it literally would, you would get the virus and you'd die. Mm. Uh, so it was dangerous um, but for the most part, the inoculation would work, um, and so they built an inoculation hospital, which was really pretty surprising with their own money, and the loyalists in the town burned it to the ground. Oh, no. And yeah, nearly killed everybody inside the hospital, and they then, uh, you know, the people that built the hospital, who are the main characters of my book, like John Glover, and very famous founder that... Um, is known for gerrymandering, Elbridge Gerry, um, as well as others, uh, wanted their you know to re- to get their money back and also punish the perpetrators. So mm-hmm. the sheriff arrested those individuals, and then the loyalists organized a massive mob to bring them out of, to spring them from jail. And they literally attacked the jail with axes and crowbars. They got the men out, and then the the houses of the of the patriots were surrounded by the mob. Uh, there's just a lot of things in here that are just what's old is new in some cases. Yeah, and uh, I think that that's what resonates with people. While I read your book and I I read about the loyalists, um, they they bother me because they didn't want the freedom that was that was right there in front of their noses and they would fight against their own brethren um, to stay under the slavery basically that Britain was imposing on them. Yeah, I, I um, the loyalists in the book are very interesting uh, and it's a nuanced story. 
it's also a story of people that, you know, they had their own courage and convictions. Uh, They just, in many ways, they were on the wrong side of history. Um, But they were ardently patriotic (laughs) for their own cause. uh, And they were dangerous Mm. uh, to Americans, too. And so, I mean, the the American Revolution becomes a, a war, a civil war. Uh, our first civil war and it was very dangerous and very bloody and very uh and gritty i think most people have no clue on in, in terms of how that kind of unfolds but i ca- i capture in the in the indispensables many loyalists for instance um one of the main characters is um is a is one of the most powerful characters in the in the in in Marblehead, he's a, a merchant that owns just an enormous uh, shipping fleet, and he has a he's one of the wealthiest men in America. His name is uh, King Hooper. King is his sort of a you know it's kind of his uh, nickname, if you will, Robert King Hooper. And in Hooper is is one of General Gage's best friends. Oh. <laughs> so you've got you've got you know this incredibly wealthy guy that has a counterpoint in Marblehead, Jeremiah Lee, who's an ardent patriot, and he's also <laughs> extremely wealthy. And you have these two men that uh, they like to display their wealth in terms of homes, and uh, they build some of the most opulent homes in America um, that um, that still exist, too. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, and they also have kind of dueling waistlines. These guys are nearly, nearly, nearly 300 pounds <laughs> each. But, uh, you know, they have just totally different perspectives on freedom and liberty. Um, Jeremiah Lee is, believes in John Locke and, and freedom and liberty. And, and King Hooper is literally his best friend is General Gage. And they, General Gage stays with the Hoopers when he comes wow. to Boston in, in their summer home. And you've got this kind of, you know, they, you've got traitors in your midst, basically. But they believe and ardently believe in their their own cause. And you have another guy by the name of Ashley Bowen, who I bring out, who's a diarist. And Ashley's just a, he believes in the crown. uh, And he's got his own kind of belief system. And it almost kills him because he's canceled by the Patriots mm-hmm. uh, who won't let him work, but somehow he survives. He somehow also escapes, you know, fighting in the continental army. Um, but you've got a lot of interesting dynamics going on in this book, but it, what it also demonstrates is the human agency, how a small group of people can change the course of history. If they really truly believe in a, a cause and they're in the, the right place at the right time. And that's where the Marbleheaders come into play, especially in the Battle of Bunker Hill, where this company of cannon is commanded by a Marbleheader by the name of Samuel Trevitt. And Trevitt is just a really remarkable character who, before the Revolution, is extremely brazen and bold. And the, uh, the Marbleheaders this is an important concept. We're not oppressors. And this is something that yes. comes out in a lot of this new view of, of the uh, American revolution. 
they didn't believe for the most part in in slavery they were ardent abolitionists mm-hmm. but they were oppressed by the british crown uh their vessels were being intercepted and they were being impressed and impressment in revolutionary war times is basically uh, slavery you you'd be you'd be against your will um kidnapped and put aboard a british vessel and, and made a, a british sailor for life and mm. you weren't allowed to go home and this was going on with trevitt and his many of his members of his family and many members of marblehead and then they were being interfered with in many other ways by the crown and, and what happened is a uh, a boat had been intercepted by the British before the war began, and they captured many Marbleheaders. Uh, and Trevitt heroically goes uh, and try and frees many of those men uh, in the dead of night. And they also capture uh, a number of arms that were being brought into the Patriots by the Marble by Marblehead. And they they bring them back to shore when they help use those those arms are used to arm the regiment. Hmm. And he's accompanied by another guy by the name of Robert Wormstead, who's one of the most interesting characters in the book. Uh, you know, I remember finding his obituary, <laughs> and he, they, they, they they use the term he's a he's a man of the old school. <laughs> I like I was like this is great. This guy's awesome. <laughs> uh, and, and, and you know, I found a scene where in. 1774, Robert Wormstead had battled British soldiers um, with a broomstick, and he <laughs> fenced them because he was an expert fencer. And the man of the old school was, you know, took him on. And he, they were outside of something called the Three Cots Tavern, which you know, this is what's so neat about this book. You can literally go to a lot of these places that still exist. The Three Cods Tavern exists in Marblehead still. Mm. This is a place that's been in operation since I, you know, around 1750. <laughs> so you can go get yourself some fish and chips and a great beer, and li- and think about Robert Wormstead as he fenced a bunch of British soldiers <laughs> with a broomstick. And Ro- Robert Wormstead and 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 uh, Trevitt were at Bunker Hill and they battled the British with their cannon and they were the only ones that really helped because most of the Patriots with their cannon were really useless. Oh, wow. uh, but Trevitt and Wormstead and and the other Marbleheads, they held at this key inflection point where the British tried to flank us um, at the Battle of Bunker Hill and uh, really incredible story. They were there with uh, Robert Stark who's a former member of Rogers Rangers, mm-hmm. who, um, that's another interesting story. These guys are the original Rangers, uh, early special ops, if you will, mini precursor of our modern special operations. That's neat. And they hold with the, the Marbleheaders at a rail fence, um, and they repulse the British multiple times. Um, and it changes the course of the battle. And then the British have to reorganize their lines under Lord Howe. He's really in a desperate situation. It's a do-or-die moment. Uh, many of his men are dead. Uh, many of his officers are dead because the Americans don't. They realize if they take out leadership positions, uh, these officers, then the, the lines will break. And, uh, you know, things are, are tenuous. Yes. Howe's even wounded. His his wine bottle's hit by his servant. Uh, he's, he's hit in the leg. Um, and he decides, you know, one more time, he's going to try to storm the um, Bunker Hill, or as you say, Breed's Hill. And there's a redoubt there 
and they make the charge. And uh, the Americans at this time are out of ammo. They're out of oh, they're out of ammunition. They're out of gunpowder, which most of that, many of that, much of that gunpowder was brought in by the Marbleheaders. Um, but they make a la- they make a last ditch stand in the redoubt, which is on top of Breed's Hill. And in there is uh, really a, a man who would have maybe been the future president of the United States, um, Joseph Warren, who was mm. the president of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. And he makes many of the decisions of the early Revolutionary War, along with the Marbleheaders, who were sitting on these key committees, too. Um, and he's he's there defending as a private, basically, even though he's appointed, he was appointed earlier as a, a general officer. Mm by the provincial congress but that's the kind of leadership these guys had and um he's there he's really america's one of america's first really big martyrs uh he dies he's shot in the face but uh he's there defending along with the other americans and as they run out of ammunition and lord howe's forces overwhelm the redoubt trevitt pulls back with his cannon um you know, pretty much in the nick of time. And, and many of them, there's several Marbleheaders that die on the hill. But their epic stand really uh, changes the course of the battle. They they really um, play a huge role in the battle. But it's a forgotten role <laughs> yes. in many ways. Until this book, The Indispensables, that I wrote, um, I, I unearthed that story. But what's interesting is the reason why, in some cases, they're forgotten is because Trevitt was initially court-martialed and they thought he was another man uh, and they thought he was a man that had actually abandoned his post and he's wow. wrongly accused of cowardice uh, this is a great hero of <laughs> bunker hill being you know wrongly accused he's he's exonerated uh by court-martial but it's it's a tragedy and uh the continental army loses a great you know a great i would say a leader and also somebody that was an ardent patriot but that's just a classic example of some of the things that kind of go on in the fog of war. It's fascinating. We've got maybe two or three minutes left. And um, I was interested also in the pastors of the era, how they would encourage the troops, you know, the patriotic pastors. There was one uh, mentioned here, a Reverend Mr. Whitehall, who preached a sermon prior to an engagement and that must have also encouraged the men to fight bravely. Yeah, there's a, a really interesting role of doctors and pastors in the American Revolution. Uh, Dr. Warren, for instance, was a leading member. So is Dr. Nathaniel Bond, who is a marbleheader. Hmm. And then you have other pastors that play key roles because of their leadership positions. It's a part of the continental life. It's it's imbued within uh, their faith in God, sure, and God, sure. uh, and it's a center of community life. And I think one other thing that's really important, at least from the northern uh, pulpits perspective, especially the, that I'm writing from, these men were largely anti-slave, sure, anti-slavery, sure. which they were preaching it from the pulpits of Marblehead and in Boston that the slavery was wrong. And uh, it's this civil, early civil rights movement, if you will, and uh, early abolitionist movement that has a profound impact on Massachusetts. And they abolished slavery in, right after the American Revolutionary War. Good for them. Yeah, that's yeah, great. They're at the forefront of this uh, struggle. Yeah. Um, 
any encouragement that you can give fellow patriots today? We have enemies within. They're very dangerous enemies seeking to destroy our constitutional republic. Two minutes. Um, I think that we all have a duty to defend the principles of, of liberty and freedom that flow from uh, the American Revolution. And we have a duty to, to stay true to those principles mm. because they change the course of history. And we have much to be proud of as Americans. Uh, there's an, you know, there's active movements to, to change our history and rewrite it uh, for a variety of reasons. But I think that we, uh, you know, we have a duty to, to just look back and be proud of our, our American heritage That's and also right. grow from it, too. I mean, obviously, it's not a, a situation where it was always um, rosy. Uh, I mean, this is a situation where, you know, I believe in telling the truth. Uh, you know, warts and all, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of greatness uh, in, in in American history and Ameri- the, the principles that we um, we that were formed during the American Revolution changed the world, and they considered they still change the world. People, freedom and liberty uh, resonates, uh, and that's it, it's 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 those ideas um, are still earth-shattering, earth-changing, and they are uh, principles that we should uh, embrace and continue to embrace. Yeah. It's wonderful. Well, thank you very much, um, Patrick O'Donnell, for writing this book and for coming on with us today. And we hope that your book continues to be successful and that God uses it to raise up even more patriots for this great nation of which we are a part. Patrick K. O'Donnell, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan. It was an honor and a pleasure. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.